Would you turn with me to the second chapter of James? And we want to uh, take up today the case of the nearsighted usher. James chapter 2. I'd like to read for you the first 13 verses. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If indeed you are fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. But if you show partiality, you you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, In chapter 1, James' concern is to comfort the afflicted. It seems to me that in chapter 2, he begins to afflict those of us that are comfortable. He begins to uh, step all over our toes. He begins to hit us where it hurts. As someone once pointed out, James doesn't merely strafe the deck, he drops the bomb right down the funnel. Fifty-four imperatives and 108 verses. James' theme, as we've seen uh, repeatedly in the past couple of weeks, is obedience at the deepest level of our our being. Uh, To him, faith is not merely believing the truth, it's doing the truth. Now again, we need to understand that James is not in any way in conflict with the rest of the uh, New Testament and the view of the apostles that our justification, our approval before God is by faith. He's not at all in conflict with them. James would say that uh, we're accepted by God on the basis of our belief in what Christ has done. But uh, his theme is that if we have really believed on Christ, there has to be an internal change. There must be some evidence of that change. If we're new creatures, if we're really sons of God, then we need to bear the family resemblance. We need to behave as God behaves. And that's why he deals with this this subject of showing favoritism uh, so so strictly. The uh, first verse is the theme verse. The uh, word that's translated personal favoritism here literally means to receive by faith or to accept one on the basis of, ex- uh, basis of externals. It's a word that occurs four times in, in the uh, New Testament and three times God is the subject. God does not 
show personal favoritism. He does not accept us on the basis of uh, the color of our skin or our culture or the way we wear our clothes or the kind of political beliefs that we have or what region of the country we uh, come from, our ethnic background. Those things don't matter to God. As he told Samuel, when Samuel went to choose the new king for Israel and, and was inclined to pick someone who looked regal, like Saul, God said, man judges by the outward appearance, but God judges by the heart. God doesn't play favorites. He's not an elitist. He's not sexist. He's not, uh, he's not a racist. He accepts people on, on another basis entirely than externals. And I think what James is saying here in, in, in this theme verse, verse 1, is that, that Christianity and racism, or Christianity and, and snobbery, Christianity and, and uh, uh, any sort of prejudice, is, is incompatible. The two don't go together. We may, as Christians, show racist tendencies, but uh, we can't justify it. We can't defend it. We can't say it's Christian. It's not. It's non-Christian. Now, the, the problem is that all of us from time to time show that inclination. We like to be identified with the rich and, and the powerful and the famous. It makes us feel better. I was watching a football game with Bob McGraw and Josh last Sunday afternoon, and the cameras panned around on John Brody, and I just sort of casually flipped out. Oh, uh, John Brody used to live right down the street from me. And Bob McGraw was suitably underwhelmed. <clears throat> and I thought afterward, you know, you know that, that is a dumb statement when you think, why didn't I tell him about Joe Schmatz, who was chronically unemployed, who lived on the other side? Why did I have to say John Brody lived down the street? You know, does that, somehow that makes me feel better about myself to identify with someone who's famous and, and powerful. You know, we always feel that we're better people in, in the company of, of better people or people that are our kind. We like that. Have you ever noticed how your attitude changes when you discover who somebody is? I, a number of years ago, when I was on the staff at Peninsula Bible Church, the entire pastoral staff went to Israel for two weeks with Dr. Bruce Walkie, who's now on the staff of Regents College. And we were way up in the northern part of Israel at uh, the city of Dan. There's just a tell there now, the ruins, the city no longer exists. And uh, we wanted to see this particular ruin uh, because uh, Bruce had done some digging up there and he knew the, uh, knew the area. And when we got there, there was an elderly gentleman just locking the place up. He was closing the fence, and he had on a dirty pair of overalls, had alkali dust all over him, and two or three-day growth of beard, and an old cowboy hat that was sweat-stained. And, and uh, he obviously was the caretaker, and we asked him if we could uh, go in and look around. He said, well, he said, I was really, I was just getting ready to go home for dinner, but yeah, I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you look around for a few minutes. So we... We went in, and, and Bruce began to lecture on all these sites, and uh, this gentleman followed us around and stood quietly and listened. And we came to one location where they'd just been digging, and, and Bruce said, I don't know anything about this, uh, this area because I wasn't here when they, were, when they were working here. And he turned to the gentleman. He said, do you know anything about this portion of the dig? And he says, yes. And he began to talk, and it became apparent after a while that he, 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 he was not the caretaker. 
very knowledgeable, uh, gave us uh, the, the history of this particular site and, and at what level they were digging and his vocabulary and everything that he said made it very clear that he, was, he wasn't who we thought he was. And uh, Bruce said, excuse me, uh, who are you? And he said, I'm Dr. Biron. And that doesn't mean anything to any of you, but Dr. Biron is probably the foremost Near Eastern archaeologist. He is head of all the archaeology, uh, all the digs in Israel. The uh, one of whom there is no humor in. Uh... <laughs> and I was just stunned. And for the rest of the trip, I was listening to everything he'd said. I just totally ignored him up to that point. But, but now, see, I discovered who he was. And afterwards, I frankly was ashamed. Because my whole attitude toward the man had changed. He was somebody, see. And we all have those tendencies to judge on the basis of, of externals. And in its, its worst forms, it takes the form of, of, of racism, dislike of, of other cultures and other races and other people. The apartheid in South Africa, the oppression of, of the native... Uh, uh, occupants of the United States and Canada and, and Australia and South America and a and, uh, tendency to, to dislike people who come from other regions of the United States or to dislike intellectuals or to be snobbish and, and anti-cultural. Uh, it's that sort of thing. And, and James says, it's wrong. It's not Christian. can't be defended or justified. We do it. We all do it. But we need to sit in judgment upon it wrong. Ultimately, it comes from, uh, comes from pride. The fundamental problem of the human race is that we're a proud people. We want everything to center on us. I am the only thing that matters in the world. And by extension, my kind are the only kind that, that matter. And so if someone comes from another culture or the color of their skin is different or they're not as educated, then they're not my kind. Now, James goes on to tell us why discrimination in any form is, is wrong. In verses 2 through 4, he says that it's a, it involves an un, unrealistic division in the human race. What we're doing is dividing up the human race in an arbitrary way, in, in, a, in a manner that God never in, intended. He uses... Uh, uh, a very telling illustration because it's the sort of thing that happens to us all the time. A man comes into, into their assembly. He uses the word synagogue, but he's not thinking specifically of a building. The, the Greek word synagogue or synagogue means a gathering. This was a gathering of Christians such as this gathering this morning. And a uh, man comes in and he's, he's obviously well-dressed. He's, he's wealthy, influential, powerful, uh, has on a Brooks Brothers suit. And, uh, and so he's catered to, pandered to. The usher says, come, come down here and sit in this good seat. And we don't have that problem here. We have a very egalitarian seating arrangement. Our seats are uni uniformly hard right across the board. <laughs> there are no good seats. But uh, in the synagogues there were, or in the, in the buildings of those days, there were, there were raised seats, and some were more comfortable than others, and so they were obviously playing favorites, judging by externals. This man can help us. He's got money. And so they seat him in the, in the best place in the, in the assembly. But someone else comes in, and he looks a little shabby and disheveled, and he, he 
suit isn't well pressed and he's unshaved. And uh, so they, you sit here on the floor. And James says, when we do that, we've made distinctions among ourselves and become judges with evil motives. It's obvious that our motives are evil, that, that we want something from the person. We're thinking selfishly. We want to derive some benefit from this, this person rather than thinking of them as a human being who has value and, and serving them regardless of how they look externally. He said, you've made distinctions among your, yourselves. And, and the distinctions are unrealistic. They're not based on truth because God doesn't divide the human race that way into the haves and the have-nots. As far as God is concerned, there's only one race, the human race. They all sprang from one pair of human beings. And he doesn't divide up the world in that, in that way. James says it's an unrealistic, faulty sort of distinction. The uh, second reason why we, we can't uh, hold together our faith and an attitude of personal favoritism is that it's ungodly. Verse 5, in the first part of verse 6, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the, the poor man. God didn't choose the rich. That's not the way he makes up his circle of friends. He didn't cho choose the Forbes 400 to be his. He, uh, he chose the rich and the poor, the tall, the dark, the handsome, the short, the shot, the shapeless. Every, every kind. See? It doesn't matter what your color is or what your political beliefs are or what your economic uh, position may be. God doesn't choose on the basis of, of externals. He, James doesn't say that he merely settled for the poor. He actually chose the poor. What, what if God only chose the handsome or the beautiful? Where would we be? Or the athletic? Or the young? Or the old? He, he doesn't make those sorts of, of choices. The third reason that James says we, we can't uh, combine our faith and an attitude of personal favoritism is that it's, it's worldly. Verse 6, is, not the rich, is it not the rich who oppress you? and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Uh, apparently the people to whom James wrote this letter were experiencing some, some oppression by the rich. It is true that most of the Christians in this uh, particular era of church history were poor. Again, it's not because God chose merely the poor, but it's because becoming a Christian often costs you a great deal. You might lose your job, your position on a university faculty or your shop. Uh, you might be uh, ostracized by your family, put on the streets, and often the Christians were, were very poor. And uh, it, was, it was the rich, non-Christians, who were oppressing them. And, and James says that when, when, we, when we have these sorts of attitudes toward the, toward the poor or toward a race other than ours, 
then we've aligned ourselves with, with non-Christians. That's the sort of thing that the enemies of God do. Just think for a moment, he says, it's the rich who oppress you. Very often it's the rich who blaspheme the name by which you're called. That is the name, the name of Christian. And what you've done is, is align yourself with God's enemies. Later on in chapter 4, verse, verse 4, in this discussion of what causes quarrels and, and conflict, he says, uh, you adulteresses, that is, those of you that are you unfaithful uh, brides of Christ, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Don't you realize that, that you're in bed with the world? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The attitude that he's, that he's talking about here is, is simple discontent. It's saying, I, I need more than what I have. It's wanting something and wanting it so strongly that you, that you oppress other people to, to get it. And James says, that's worldly. You know, we're, we're inclined to, uh, to define worldliness in terms of, of the more obvious manifestations of the flesh such as adultery or murder or, or um, uh, embezzlement. And uh, we also identify it with, uh, in some cases, with extra-biblical things, such as smoking, drinking, going to movies, those sorts of things. But what James is saying is that essentially to be a racist, to dislike black people simply because they're black or Chinese, or they are Democrats, or Republicans, or Flatlanders, or Mountain People, or Californians. Is <laughs> worldly, you see? You can avoid beer bus and be worldly. That's what he's saying, because it's an attitude, it's a subtle attitude, and, and it's not compatible with Christian faith. And when we align ourselves with those who have these attitudes toward those who are not their kind, we've aligned ourselves with the world. That's what he's saying. We've become an enemy of God. So racism, elitism, sexism, is, it's unrealistic. It's based on an arbitrary division of the human race that God never intended. It's ungodly. That's not the way God looks at the human race. It's worldly. And furthermore, as James goes on, it's, it's unscriptural, it's, it's unbiblical. Let me read again verse 8 and following. If indeed, not however, but indeed, the particle probably emphasizes what, he, what follows. If indeed you are fulfilling the royal law, that is the sovereign law of the king, uh, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. That was that statement. Uh, found in Leviticus is, is a statement of, of the underlying meaning of the law. That's the essence of the law. The purpose of the law was to help, us to help Israel to love people. The reason they weren't to rob egg uh, bird's nests and uh, cut down certain types of trees is not because God is ultimately concerned about birds and trees. He is because that's a part of his creation, but his ultimate concern is the human race. And uh, if we take care of the environment, then, then man will be so much better off. And all the other provisions of the law are there because they show us how to love one another. You don't commit adultery with your neighbor's wife because that's not loving either to your neighbor or to his wife. 
You don't murder your neighbor because obviously that's not loving. You don't uh, lie to your neighbor or bear, bear false witness about him because that's, that's not loving. And, and, and we don't divide up the human race on any unbiblical basis because that's not loving. I can't tell my, my brother to go sit in the back of the bus or that he can't drink out of my water fountain or they can't come into my house or he can't eat at my table. He can't fellowship in my, in my body of believers because he has a different color of skin because that's unloving. And as James goes on to say, if, if you show partiality, it's the same word that, it's the verb form of the, of the word that's translated personal favoritism in verse 1. If you show partiality, you're committing sin. How simple can you get? Racism, sexism, to discriminate against women simply because they're women, or to think of, of women as, as, as foolish and merely emotional, and uh, to, perpetu- to perpetuate that idea by the, the humor, the bad humor that we use, or the, the mother-in-law jokes that, so easily, uh, that we so easily uh, tell. Or the ethnic jokes that are designed to put down and degrade another, another person. He says that's sin. If you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's what I mean when I say James begins to step on our toes because we're all guilty. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. See what he's saying? The law is a unit. It's like a pane of glass. It's not like this stained glass window. Somebody threw a rock through it uh, this last fall, and we were able to repair one panel. But the law is not like that. It's like one sheet of glass. You throw a rock through it, and and the whole thing is broken. And the, the obvious illustration is, is the one that James cites. I can say to you, I am not an adulterer. But if I murder someone, I'm obviously a transgressor of the law. And James would say the same thing. We can say, I, I am not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. Uh, I don't bear false witness. I don't, uh, I don't lie. I don't covet. But I don't like Mexicans. There are two things I can't stand, race, prejudice, and Mexicans. <laughs> if I say that, I have become a lawbreaker. See? That's what James is saying. We can't justify it. We can't defend it. It isn't Christian. It's ungodly. And uh, to make his point, James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of how much? Paul, we might as well be a murderer or adulterer. See, God doesn't look at sin and say, well, now that's a biggie. That's a big sin, but that one's a mere picadillo. We'll just overlook that one. He doesn't look at sin that way. Sin is sin. One of the real problems I I think we all uh, can see in the evangelical church is a tendency to to look upon certain sins as deadly sins and, and, and certain sins as acceptable. 
and this tendency to show favoritism, to judge by face, to perpetuate racist attitudes, uh, or to, uh, to cater to the rich and the powerful and the wealthy. Is, uh, it's endemic. It, you, you find it everywhere. It's wrong. James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. We need to correct our attitudes, and it's the law of liberty that, that does it. It's the scripture. That's the law that sets us free. It sets us free from our prejudice and our dislike of people who are not like us. Finally, in, 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 verses thir- in verse 13, if we show personal favoritism, it may indicate that we are not Christians. Now, he's not saying that an occasional failure is an indication that, that we are not Christians, or that failure in this area will result in loss of salvation. That's not the biblical position. But what he's saying is that if, if you or I can walk out of this room today and defend our, our racism or our snobbery, then we may not be Christians. Listen to what he says. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What James is saying is that if we show no mercy, we will receive no mercy. Now, this is in line with a number of statements, uh, and I think James is thinking of, of Jesus' words. He so often uh, quotes from his brother's lips, words from his brother's lips. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, if we don't show mercy, we will not receive mercy. And In Matthew 6, Jesus says, if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. And In Matthew 7, Jesus says, if, if we judge, we'll be judged severely. And in each case, the point that Jesus is making is not that, that our good works make us more acceptable to God, that if we, if we show mercy and if we are not judgmental and if we forgive others, then God will, on the basis of our good works, accept us. What Jesus is saying is that if we can justify and defend these attitudes, then we have never received mercy. We've never received forgiveness, you see. Jesus told a story once that followed right on the heels of his statement to Peter about forgiving 490 times. Uh, he, he said that there was a man who owed a, an enormous debt, 10,000 talents, which is about $10 million in our money today, but in terms of actual uh, buying power, it would be like a billion dollars. And uh, the, the creditor calls in his debt, and, and the man can't pay it, but he says, I, I, you know, don't put me in debtor's prison. I'll pay it. I figured out once that on the basis of salaries in those days, it would have taken him 152,000 years to pay off that debt. It was an incalculable debt. He, he couldn't pay it off. And his creditor says, it's all right, I forgive you. And the man walks out of, out of that scene and he finds someone who owes him a, a dollar eighty, And he grabs him by the throat and he says, Pay me what you owe me. And the man says, I can't. Let me work it out. And he says, no. And he throws him in debtor's prison. So the original creditor calls him in, and he says, I forgave you a billion-dollar debt. You can't forgive your, your brother a dollar eighty. And it says he was cast into outer darkness. Now, I think what Jesus means by that, again, is not that it's, uh, 
that it's a works system, but rather the works issue from a realization that God has been at work in our life. If we are forgiven, we can forgive anything. If I've been forgiven a billion-dollar debt, which is precisely what, what it amounts to, I can forgive anyone anything. And if I have received infinite mercy, then I need to extend mercy to the weak and the pitiful and those who are not my kind. That's what Jesus is saying. If we are truly Christian, we can accept anyone because God accepted us. Who are we to think that because we are what we are that God accepted us? He didn't accept us on the basis of our education or our intelligence or our training or our background or our economic class or our race or on any other arbitrary uh, basis. He, we came to him just as we are and he accepted us. So what right do I have to turn my brother away because he's black or brown or yellow or white? Or a woman, or a man, or from some other part of the world, or some other political persuasion. Can't do it. I can't do it. I can't call myself Christian and be a racist. Now, unfortunately, we live in a fallen world, and we're going to find these attitudes uh, prevail throughout the world. We're not going to change the world very much. As you may know, back in the 60s, there was the development of a system of theology, liberation theology, that grew out of Central America and some of the oppressive regimes there and attempts to try to set people free by overthrowing the, the structures, the, the social structures that exist. And for my part, it's, it's misguided because we're not going to change people by changing social structures. These sorts of distinctions will carry on until will be carried on until the Lord comes back. We we should try to meet the needs of oppressed people wherever we can. We ought to try to change structures where we can, but we need to be realistic. The only the only way we're going to change anyone is by changing their hearts. And therefore, the church is one place where there need never be any prejudice shown toward anyone. We can't change the world, but we can change our church, and specifically this church. If there are attitudes here that need to be changed, we can change them because we have the power to do so. Would you turn with me back to the uh, book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 11. James, or Paul, says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. He's talking to Gentiles, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace. I uh, preached on this passage some months ago. I'm not going to go back over it again, except to say that the law was what kept Jew and Gentile separated. Jews laid the law on the Gentiles and and said, in effect, you measure up to my demands or I won't accept you. And that was never God's intention, that the law be used that way. And so it became a barrier, a physical barrier. In, in, the, in the case of the temple, they actually built a wall to keep the Gentiles outside. Jews could go into the inner court, Gentiles outside. 
Paul says, all that's over. Christ has abolished the enmity. There are no barriers, no racial barriers, no sexual barriers, no cultural barriers. He made one new man. And, and, and therefore, there's no reason why those distinctions should ever exist in our body. If someone comes in and they're shabbily dressed, we need to accept them on the same basis that we accept someone who's well-dressed or if they come from another, another part of the world or another part of, of our country. If, if they belong to Christ, we have more in common with them than we do our next-door neighbor who, who dresses just like we do and who has the same cultural background. You know, they could even have a bone in their nose, for that matter, and know Christ. And that's my brother. Can't reject them. Have to accept them. Have to embrace them. They're my friends. Uh, back in the 60s, I was involved in a ministry to students at, uh, at Stanford University. And um, God did a, just did an amazing piece of work in those years. Most of the people that are uh, the younger men that are on our staff, Steve Newman and Brian Fisher, Chris Riddell, Peter Waringa, and uh, Terry Pepe, some of you who are uh, in the congregation now were involved in that, in that movement. And, uh, you know, students back in those days looked very, very strange. Uh, Steve Newman had shoulder-length hair. And he had a handlebar mustache. And he wore the weirdest clothes of anyone I've ever seen in my life. I mean, if you saw the pictures of these men that you know today, back, you just wouldn't believe it. They, they were strange. <laughs> they looked like everybody else on the campus. You couldn't distinguish them. Um, my, my father was pastor of uh, Schofield Church in Dallas, a large metropolitan uh, downtown church. Very influential church. Very wealthy church. A lot of money in that church. He'd been there for 45 years. Um, that church had a hard time accepting students that had long hair. In fact, they didn't turn anyone away. But it was obvious if you came in barefooted and with long hair, you didn't belong there. My, my father came out to California. and He was about 60 years old at the time. He's 87 now. Still going strong. Not in that church, but in another situation. He was in his 60s. It's really hard to change when you're 60. It's hard to change when you're 50, but it's even harder when you're 60. And uh, he went with me into uh, Steve Newman's fraternity house. Um, we, we went up into Steve's room, which was a disaster area. And uh, these students sat around the, around the perimeter of the room. There were about a dozen or so that were in positions of leadership. And we used to meet once a week to study the scriptures and to pray together. And uh, my father sat in on that uh, discussion. He didn't say anything. He was appalled. When we walked into that fraternity house, I thought he was going to get back in the car and go home. But he, he stuck it out, and he went upstairs, and he sat down in that room, and he listened to those young men, most of whom today are, are in positions of Christian leadership around the, around the world. And they were an odd-looking bunch, no doubt about it. And my father didn't say anything. But on the way home, very quiet. I said, what do you think, Father? And he said, well, he said, those are my brothers. And uh, he began to tell me that what he had perceived was a depth of spiritual life, a, a very profound belief that, 
that he didn't see in a lot of the people that he knew that dressed like he did and looked like he did. And he said, those are my brothers. And he went back to Schofield Church and he preached a sermon based on that experience and this passage in James 2. And he just pointed out that uh, these freaky-looking kids belong to the body of Christ and they needed to open the doors of that great church and let them in and accept them as brothers because that's what they were. And he quoted a passage from the, uh, from the Love Song. I don't know if you remember that group back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, Christian rock group. Long hair, talk, describing a congregation of people sitting together, long hair, short hair, some coats and ties, looking past the hair and straight into the eyes, and he quoted that. And they opened their doors to those kids. And that's what we have to do. doesn't make any difference where they come from, how far out they are. That's my brother. We have to love him. If we don't, we're making a, 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 an unbiblical distinction in the human race. It's ungodly behavior. It's the sort of thing we could expect from people in the world. But it's not what we should expect from Christians. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red, yellow, black, white. They are precious in his sight. Are they precious in your sight? And in mind, let's pray. Father, we don't like to hear this. This is not what we prefer. It's unsettling. But it's truth, and we need to believe it. We need to be not merely hearers of the word, but, but doers of it. Give us the grace, Lord, to act in this way, to, to not... Think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but, but to think realistically and to associate with the lowly. To be willing to set aside our, our pride and our prejudice and uh, include in those that you've included, those that you love. Give us a, a heart of love for all kinds, even those that are not our kind. And we know you can do that. We know you're, you're infinitely forgiving of our failures in this area. We've all failed. But you forgive. You go on forgiving. And you give grace to comply with the truth. And we thank you for that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.